Well, let's pray again, but also maybe, I don't know, some of you may or may not know, Pastor David's mom has been very seriously ill over the past few weeks, and she passed this morning. So let's pray for the Avila family and then for our service. So let's pray. Lord God, we come before you again, and we're so thankful that you are with us through every phase of life and every season. And so we pray for Pastor David and Patricia and for their children, Lord, that you would comfort them during this time of loss, that you would comfort David's father as he mourns the loss of his wife. And so, Father God, we pray that you would surround them with your love and that you would comfort them. And Lord, that you would just remind them to reach out to their family here at church if they have any need. And we're so thankful, Lord, that most importantly that she knew you and she is now in the presence, in your presence, rejoicing. And so we just pray that they would find comfort in that during this time, Lord. We also ask that you would just bless our time as we read your word, that you would speak to each and every one of us in a powerful way, Lord God. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So no easy transition with that, but let's, let's turn to our Bibles to Isaiah 34. So Isaiah 34 this morning, so this is probably the last, well not the last time in Isaiah, but really one of the the strongest forms of, I would say, judgment language that the prophet Isaiah is going to use in an entire chapter. And so after this, it's going to change in tone, but it's important for us to go through this section. And the title of this morning's message is The Final Verdict. I don't know about you, but I... Do you like suspense, movies of suspense being kept in suspense and like not knowing what's going to happen? I think that's the fun of the show, right? There's some people that don't like that. They want to know. Maybe you're that person. Do you want to know what's going to happen? Like, am I, if I'm going to invest my time in this, I want to know that it's going to be a good outcome. And there's some people like that. It's kind of like, well, just enjoy the journey. That's part of the thing. But, you know. Maybe you're that person. Hey, I, I want to know what's going to happen at the end. I know, I know I watched a movie a long time ago a friend told me about, and I got fully invested in this young little boy in this movie. is a historical movie about the Catholic Church in Mexico in the early 1900s, and I followed the boy's life, and in the end, he died. And I was like, oh, my goodness, dude. I, I thought he was going to live. Why did you tell me to watch a movie like that? The suspense, that killed me. And so maybe you're like that. You're like, I want to know about the end. And even in our own life, right, part of the, maybe the sense of fear is like, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And so you want, you know, you want to know, is this going to be a good outcome? What I'm going through, the decision I make, is that going to be good? And we know from experience, it's not always good. And we don't always know what lies ahead of us. Changing jobs or moving to a different part of a country or a city, changing schools, whatever it is, there's some suspense in that. And in today's story, we're going to see the Lord is going to kind of lay out and kind of like end the suspense for the nation of Israel. But in the process, as we look at that, there's also a promise to each and every one of us that in this, in the drama of human history, we already know what's going to happen at the end. And if you don't, I hope that this morning's sermon will reassure you that the end is a good thing. For the Christian, the end You don't have to be living in suspense. It's going to turn out well for you. But in the process of that, God has to announce that there's also a verdict that doesn't end well for some people. And so here in Isaiah 34, 
God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, as he has been, and he's going to tell the nation of Judah, he's going to kind of lay out, this is what's going to happen. Because you guys continue to trust other nations, I'm telling you, that is not going to work out well for you, as we know, he's been telling them over and over again. And he's kind of just going way out into the future. He goes, eventually, I'm going to come down hard on the entire world, and what are you going to do about it? Where are you going to put your trust and your hope? Because all these things that you're clinging to aren't going to work out well. So God preemptively says, here, let me end this suspense, but he has to say it. And I hope you hear that message this morning as well, that God has to tell each and every one of us, this is what's going to happen. If you follow me, it's going to end good for you. But if you don't follow me, it's not going to. And that's final. That's the verdict. And so it is into that context that we look at this morning's message in Isaiah 34. So just think of a courtroom setting, so to speak, where God as the judge is coming out and he is reading the verdict. And again, the good thing is it's not over yet. It's not over yet. So in Isaiah 34, let's just read verse 1 and you'll understand what I'm talking about. So the prophet Isaiah speaking for God says, Draw near, O nations to hear and listen, O people. So he calls everybody to draw near and to listen. I'm going to say something of significance. And he says, let the earth and all it contains hear and the world and all that springs from it. So God wants not only Judah, but he wants all of humanity to hear what is in store for the entire world. Again, this is the end. This is what's going to happen in the end. God is saying to Judah. So it's not just about their thing that's going on in their life. Now he goes, here, ultimately, there's something bigger and greater going on. And so in a very poetic and prophetic way, this is what the Lord says. Let's just read verses 2 through 4. So God is going to call all of earth to hear, to listen to this verdict, and this verdict is the final judgment. And look at what he says in verse 2 through 4. He says, For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter, so their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood, and all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and their hosts will also wither away. As a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from a fig tree. So here God is telling Judah that ultimately, and by extension, he's calling all nations to listen to his verdict. That final judgment is coming, and it's coming against the entire world. And it's coming for two purposes. If you look again at verse 2. He says it's coming for their rejection of the Lord, right? That's why God's wrath is against them. It's against all the nations. Why? Because they've rejected him. It's against all the nations for they've rejected him. And not only that, it's because they have come against God's people. He says, for the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. So God's saying, hey, you guys, the entire world is going to face judgment. That is the verdict. Because of their sin against God, 
and because of their persecution against the Lord's people. That's why he's going to destroy their armies, the armies that have been coming against God's people. As we learned last week, God was going to destroy the Assyrians or at least keep them from attacking Judah, his people. And by extension, throughout world history, God is promising to protect his people ultimately. And we'll see that in a few moments. So the point here in the final judgment is God is, his final judgment is against all nations and he's going to defeat them. That's why he uses that language. He's going to destroy all their armies. God is showing Judah that he is sovereign over all things. Again, Judah has been trusting in all their neighbors around them to stave off the Assyrian army. And God's telling him that is not going to work. Ultimately, all these nations will fail you. I'm, and Assyria is going to turn their back on you because they made a covenant not to attack you, as we talked about last week. But they are coming to attack them. He's saying, you can't trust in anybody but me. Eventually, all these things will fail. So in this language of this final judgment, God is showing his sovereignty over all things and over the entire earth. That's why he talks about the sky being rolled back like a scroll. God owns the entire earth. He's sovereign over all things. And so final judgment is against all the nations. It is going In final judgment, God's going to defeat all the armies of the nations. And the final judgment is going to affect the entire world. Final judgment also is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Sin will finally have to be atoned for. The entire world will pay for their sins because they don't trust in Jesus Christ. And that's what he talks about in verses 5 through 7. Let's look at this. And again, God is using, or Isaiah is using very graphic language. That's what happens in apocalyptic literature to grab the attention of the people that are listening because all that he's done so far hasn't worked. So now he's making it really vivid. And so he says this in speaking on the Lord's behalf. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend from judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them, and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood, and their dust becomes greasy like fat. God is describing a slaughter, like a, an, a sacrificial slaughter that he had done with the bulls and goats. And he's describing that with the world. They are going to atone for their sin because they did not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice ultimately. So the entire world must pay for their sin in their own blood. And that's what he's talking about to Judah, that eventually the entire world is going to pay for their sin. So the final judgment is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And he continues on in verses 8 through 15, talking about final judgment is also the ultimate justice. As we look for justice in the world, it will ultimately come when God judges the entire world. God is going to make all the wrongs Right, and that's what he speaks about in verses 8 through 15. Let's particularly look at verses 8 and 9. He says this, For the Lord has a day of vengeance. God is finally going to exact revenge or justice on all those people that have sinned against him. And look at the next line, A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Zion meaning his people. He's also, again, 
persecuting, he's attacking those who've persecuted his people. So God has a day in the future where justice is going to be served and he's going to exact vengeance or recompense on those who've attacked his people. God protects his children. So that's what he's saying here. Those that have rebelled against the Lord are going to have to pay for that. And those who have persecuted his people will also pay for that. Verse 9 says, Its streams will be turned into pitch, and its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch. So this ultimate justice, again, will be over those who have sinned against God and those who have persecuted his people. And verses 10 through 15 talks about the finality of judgment, that this is it, it is over, there's no more, well, God's going to give you one more chance. He's saying there's going to come a time in the future where that it's over, there's no more chances. The chances are now, while you hear this verdict being read is what he's saying, but there's going to be a time in the future where it's over. He, you know, God hits this gavel on the bench, so to speak, and it is done. And so that's what he talks about in verses 10 through 15. Let's just read that. Again, this is just a prophetic and poetic way to describe the finality on how justice is going to be served. And he says this, It will not be quenched night or day, meaning God's vengeance. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation, it will be desolate. No one will pass through it forever and ever, also speaking of the land. But pelican and hedgehog will possess it, and owl and raven will dwell in it, and he will stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there, whom they may proclaim king, and all its princes will be nothing. Thorns will come up in fortified towers, nettles and thistles in the fortified cities. It will also be a haunt of jackals, and an abode of ostriches. Again, he's just showed you that the land that people live in is going to be desolate, that only animals are going to roam over it. And he's saying that again just to show you that how he's going to lay waste to the earth eventually. Moving on. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves. The hairy goat also will cry to its kind. Yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there, and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will be gathered there, everyone with its kind. So again, the prophet uses this language to describe just how this is the ultimate end. It's just desolation. There's no more people there. It's just animals living in this land. As if, you know, when an army comes through an ancient land and just wipes it out, Nothing can grow, no one can live. Just the animals will roam over that area. And that's what the prophet is trying to, to get through to the people of Judah. That's what's going to happen to them. But just like God, in reading this verdict, it's like that's not the final end. You know, there's hope. And this is what Isaiah stresses in verses 16 through 17 as we close out this chapter. Look at what he says. He says, seek from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing. None will lack its mate. For his mouth has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them 
and his hand has divided it to them by line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they will dwell in it. So here, as Isaiah has called the entire earth to listen to what God is going to do, he calls the entire earth, because of this verdict, you need to know that this is for sure verdict, and you need to seek out the Lord. That's what he says in verse 16. Seek from the book of the Lord and read. Know that this is a true judgment that God is proclaiming, but in the book you will find life. You will find life from God. All of creation is called to respond to this verdict. And he wants them to know that this is sure because look at the language that he uses again in verse 16 and 17. For his mouth has commanded it, his spirit has gathered them, he has cast a lot for them, and his hand has divided it to them by line. He shows God's power is doing all this. God has commanded this verdict, and God has commanded the people of the earth to go look and find out that it is true, because if it is true, then you can come to the Lord and follow him and trust him and avoid all of this. And so that's the suspense that he's saying. It's like, hey, there's something bad coming, judgment because you've rejected me, because you've persecuted my people, but seek out the Lord. Seek the book of the Lord and read it and find out the truth. And so that's Isaiah's prophecy here in verse 17. And I want to, our chapter 35, but I want to, before we close, I want to ask us a couple of things about this text. What does this prophecy teach us about God? What does it teach us about God? Because that's the important thing as we read Scripture. And it's great to, you know, study all these details and the history about what's going on with the nation of Judah But the most important thing for all of us is what does it teach us about God and how does it apply to me? How does it affect me? Because again, this is God's verdict, not just for Judah, but remember at the very beginning, he called all of the earth to listen to this. That includes you and me. And it includes everybody that has lived throughout human history. So it teaches us a few things, and I'm just going to point out three this morning. The first one is this. That God will exact justice on sin. God will exact justice on sin. God does not just let sinful things happen and say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Because he has done something about it. He's atoned for the sins of this world by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die for you. To die for me. To die for the sins of this world. So the people that are going to pay for their own sins, who he's talking about here in Isaiah 34 are those who reject God. Those who reject God. Right? Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because sin has come into this world, every soul that sins, we are told, will die. That's why we die, because of sin that's entered this world. But again, God did not leave us there. When you read the rest of that verse in Romans 6.23, it says the wages for sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, even though God has read the verdict, this is what's going to happen. The soul that sins shall die. He says, but Jesus came to atone for your sin, and so Jesus died for us, and we don't have to die that physical death or that spiritual death, I should say. And so this is God's future for each and every person that trusts him. So we, this prophecy teaches us that God will exact justice on sin. Right? God doesn't just let things go. Everything 
is going to be atoned for and paid for. It's something else that you may think of. You know, thankfully, we live in a part of the world where we're not persecuted for our faith. Physical persecution, right? We might face verbal persecution or exclusion, but we don't face death or torture or imprisonment. And so God has promised that, you know what, as we read, that he will take vengeance on those who harm his children in any way. God has promised us that, that God is going to watch out for his children. Just like a parent would not allow someone to hurt their children, God himself, in his own way, says, you know what, I'm going to protect you. Sometimes it means you're going to go through some things, but ultimately I will exact vengeance on people who harm his people, the church. God promises that. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, you can turn there with me to Revelation 16. God promises over and over again in the book of Revelation. He promises the church, hold on. There's ultimate victory at the end, even though it might feel like craziness and suspense and horror in the meantime. Hold on, because I promise I will exact revenge on all those who persecute you. And I want to show you a few verses in here where it specifically says that God's judgment comes on this world because the people have persecuted God's people. So in Revelation chapter 16, let's read verses 4 through 7. In this section, God is pouring out his bowls of wrath on the world. And this one is in particular because the world has persecuted believers. Look at what it says. It says, Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the river and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. You see, God is righteous because he exacts justice and he judges. Look at what he says. For they poured out the blood of saints, that means believers, right? Saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So here's an example where God pours out his wrath on the world because they've poured out the blood of his saints and his apostles. And that's why it says that they deserve it. You have given them blood to drink, you know, an eye for an eye. They spilled the blood of the saints. Now they will drink blood in the form of God's wrath, and they deserve it. Look over two more verses, to, or two more chapters, to Revelation 18, verse 20. And he says, Rejoice over her, as this talks about the destruction of the world system in the form of Babylon. He says, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints, and apostles and prophets. Why? Because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. God is pronouncing judgment on the world system on your behalf, on my behalf, and your behalf, because they've persecuted us. The Christian church has been persecuted since its foundation, and God is one day going to exact revenge on all those who've persecuted his church. One more verse, drop down to chapter 19 and look at verses 1 through 2. He says, And after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God. Why? 
because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and, look at what this says, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Just another example of how God promises eventually he will judge all those people that persecute his church. Again, he said this in Isaiah 34. This is the final verdict. And here in Revelation, we see the culmination of that happening. This is the promise to the Christian church that when we're persecuted, God will exact revenge. We don't need to exact revenge. God will do it. And so that means we suffer for a little bit, but ultimately God will exact revenge for us. So again, this prophecy teaches us that God will exact justice on sin. He will take vengeance on those who harm his children. And thirdly, he is long-suffering, meaning he's patient. He doesn't just come down on people hard right away. Imagine how each and every one of us would have faced God's judgment in our own life if he exacted judgment on us when the first time we sinned or the second time we sinned or the third time we've sinned. He's not like that. He's long-suffering. Look at what the book of Acts says in chapter 17, verses 30 through 31. It says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. There's a lot said in here that really, again, which is why I used it, relates to Isaiah 34, right? God is now, it says back to Acts 17, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Again, this is why he gave that final verdict to Isaiah, not saying I'm judging right now, he's letting them know sometime in the future I'm going to exact judgment on this world. So in the meantime, you guys need to seek me Read the book, this, you know, this metaphorically speaking back then. Obviously, the Bible wasn't written back then. The point being that God is patient and giving an opportunity for people to come to him. All men should repent. Even now, that's the same message to us today and to those of you in this room. God's message, even though in the future judgment is coming, right now you need to repent because God is long-suffering. He's overlooked those times of ignorance. Think of this, those of you that I didn't come to faith, I don't think until I was, you know, 18, almost probably even 19 when I really understood it. I'm so thankful that in, from zero to 19, I didn't die because I would have been lost without God for all eternity. Think of the time in your life if you would have died before you came to the Lord because of your ignorance about God. Where would you spend eternity? Where would you be right now? God is long-suffering. And it says he overlooked those times of ignorance, even in our own lives today. But he's now declaring to men that everybody should repent. And again, this is why he gave that final verdict in Isaiah 34. He wanted Judah to repent. And then again, in the text in Acts 17, he says he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Again, there is a fixed day in the future. There is a time when God says that's it. He's going to finally fully consummate his judgment on this world. But in the meantime, we need to repent. In the meantime, we need to trust in the Lord. 
So those are just three things I think that we can learn from this morning's text. And lastly, the question for each and every one of us is how will we respond to this verdict? Since those things are true, how do you and I respond to those? And there's a wide range of options for every person in this room. For I would just say the two that are most important. Number one, for those of you who do not know the Lord, the message is the same. God is declaring that you would repent because this is the future. The suspense is over. That's what's going to happen in the end. That's what the future holds for every person in human history. It's either rejoicing in the presence of God or weeping apart from Him in eternal torment. Those are the two options. There's no third option. How will you respond to that? And for those of us who are already the Lord's, if that's the end, then we can have hope, as we've been talking about over the past few weeks. We have assurance that these things are going to happen. We hold on, again, just like the message in the book of Revelation, there is victory in the end, so hold on. Weather the storm, because in the end, it's going to be, it's a good ending. And we've been talking about that over the past few weeks. Again, if you don't know that, just read Revelation 20, 21, and 22, and you will see each and every believer's future. So again, let me close with this. How will you respond? Will you repent if you don't know him? I pray that you would do that this morning. And for those of us who already trust in the Lord, let us rejoice that in the end, God wins. God's future, God has a, a beautiful future for each and every one of us who trust in him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you again for your word. Thank you even for the harsh words that were spoken in Isaiah's time in chapter 34. Because they're truth and they're reality. And you've spoken them so that all men might repent and come to know you as their Lord and Savior. That they might seek you and hear you and find you. And I pray that this morning, Lord God, if there's anybody in this room who is not sure where they would spend eternity, they are not sure if they have given their life over to you. I pray that you would move them this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit to come forward and to pray with us and that they might give their life to you, that they might rejoice in knowing you. And for those of us, Lord God, who already know you, may we see this section of Scripture as a reminder of what we have in you, that there is no suspense in this life because we know the ending. But in the meantime, help us to trust in you. Help us to hold on to you. Help us to continue as we sung this morning to walk around those walls trusting you because you've never failed us and you never will. Help us to hold on to you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.